Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, I have an unanswerable question for you to start the podcast. As always, we're back to back to usual. All right, hit me with it. Okay, my unanswerable question for you is, do you think in the run of this podcast, existing, ever, Bernie Sanders will ever hear even one second of it? It doesn't, he doesn't have to like download it onto his Apple Podcasts or Radio Public or Spotify or overcast i feel like bernie's an overcast guy yeah he just has to hear one second of it even if it's a twitter video even if someone plays it out loud next to him you know one of bernie's aides is a big tipping pitches guy right yeah and like bernie like walks into the room and the and the aide was listening to it out loud and he's like oh sorry sorry let me turn this off but it's the same way that everybody listens to podcasts out loud on their phone at work right (laughs) yes exactly and bernie just catches one of us like mid rant and we're just like Manfred really just has to su-. and then that's it and that's all he hears and Bernie wants to know yeah that that's how we get him to become a subscriber but do you think that will ever happen yes or no just your gut feeling yes i think i think Bold. he i think he will i think that we're going to keep this running long enough and look i know he's going to be really busy as president but like something tells me that that like in his effort to connect with the the hashtag youth, that he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna want to connect with podcasters, right? Like uh-huh. that's that's the the final frontier right there is podcasting. And what whether, better way to dive into that world than with a under listened, underfunded baseball podcast? I do have to say, you thinking that podcasting is the final frontier is the funniest <laughs> thing you've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> podcasting isn't even the youngest frontier right now oh oh bernie was really trying to go young he was he would hop all over tiktok how long before people think that tiktok is for young people but young people no longer like tiktok you know like how long before the people who are 10 or 12 or 13 or however old you have to be to understand tiktok now are like dad i don't even like tiktok anymore is that already happening (laughs) I can't even wrap my head around that. Like all, like every single aspect of that idea is so foreign to me. Like the idea of not liking the platform that you're on and being roasted by everyone else. For, actually, that's just Twitter. Never mind. I, yes, <laughs> it's going to happen within a year. Is the answer? All right, we are going to play a little game this week where you and I exchange questions, trying to get to the bottom of answers we don't know about each other as fans, as baseball consumers. Um, we're going to talk a little bit of news at the top before that, but before we get to all of that fun, I am Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Baisley. And this is Tipping Pitches, the podcast that, according to Alex, will be listened to by Bernie Sanders at some point. Alex, Bernie is on our rundown. That's why I started off with a hypothetical about him. Do you know what he did this week? Of course you do. You retweeted it from the Tipping Pitches account. He waded into the debate about minor league baseball. I knew we could trust him. I knew we could. Do you think Do you think Bernie follows Sean Doolittle on Twitter? Like, was he already following Sean and that's how he retweeted? Or like the, the tweet just popped up onto his feed? Like something tells me that Sean Doolittle, who tweeted about this, the, the minor league baseball debacle, Like, he wasn't retweeted very much. Like, I think Bernie was seeking that content out, you know? Uh, I mean, there's a very easy way to find out if he actually answers him on Twitter. We could just go look, but that's more research than we would ever do for this podcast. Um, I think that this tweet was not sent from Mr. Sanders himself. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I think it was sent by an enterprising member of his campaign who happens to be a baseball fan. And if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter or you work on the Bernie Sanders campaign, chances are you probably follow Sean Doolittle on Twitter, right? He's the only public DSA baseball player. <laughs> Literally, there's one, and it's him. 
I would just want to go back to the part where you said that Bernie Sanders doesn't do his own tweets. He 100% does. When he tweeted about uh, thanking Ariana Grande earlier today for just being um, a wonderful comrade, that was that was him. That was 100% him. I do have to say, usually politicians have in their Twitter bio tweets sent by Bernie signed BS or whatever, right? He doesn't have that in his Twitter bio, so maybe he does just do all of his interviews. <laughs> right, exactly. That's the implication. Um, okay, so we're not just going to talk about this tweet. We should actually talk about the uh, story that Sean Doolittle tweeted about originally, and that's that MLB is said to um, be considering eliminating at least 42 minor league teams. So we talked about this earlier in the year when Travis Sochik wrote a piece in 538 that we hammered pretty hard, honestly. Um, and now there's been a follow-up, some follow-up reporting from The Athletic's Emily Walden and The New York Times and some other places um, just talking about which teams are kind of on the chopping block now and that number amounts to 42, which I think is a weird coincidence that just happens to be 42 teams because that's a very significant number in baseball. It doesn't actually mean anything. I'm, I'm just pointing that coincidence out. Um, you know, I, I encourage everybody to kind of read up on this, to even read Sachek's original opinion piece. If you're interested in finding out the way that the wrong side thinks, but um, I think the most interesting part of this to me and to us is that the justification that's being shared for this and the reporting that's been done is showing that it's not due to lack of turnout. It's not due to lack of attendance. It's not due to baseball fans disinterest in minor league baseball or, or there being more baseball existing. It's because there's been so much public pressure around paying minor leaguers and it's not surprising to me, but I guess it's duly frustrating that the public and players themselves and the MLB players association are pushing for players to get paid more fair wages. And MLB's response is not to say, okay, we'll meet you at the table and discuss this. It's to say, how can we get rid of these players entirely so that this conversation can just be put to a complete end? Yeah. I love that all of a sudden major league owners just think that there are too many minor league players right? Like all of a sudden they just feel this like out of, out of the blue, they're like, uh, actually maybe having thousands of minor league players, uh, isn't good for us. Even though the system has worked for like more than half a century, like now it's a problem. <laughs> now that the conversation around this thing is getting louder. What I do, the, the darkly ironic twist of this is the reason that we're talking about this now is that there was a letter sent by members of Congress to Major League Baseball asking them to basically reconsider this decision, which is incredibly funny to me, given uh, given how hard Congress has tried, including literally passing legislation about this, to keep minor leaguers paid below minimum wage, right? It's just like the idea of like, well, we need as many people under the thumb of capitalism as possible. And <laughs> if you if you release them to the working world, they might get better paying jobs, right? So like so like keep your uh keep your structure in place that keeps these people at the at the whim of the free market. Yeah, it's like uh, the existence of any labor structure that is unbalanced towards workers is good for capitalism. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> even if it's a player pool or even if it's a worker pool, I should say, as small as baseball players, professional baseball players. Yeah, I think I think what you said about like all of a sudden the owners are not interested in having all of these minor league players is um really resonant with me because like when the existence of large minor league baseball player pools was just to give owners the greatest chance at getting a good player who's young, which then means a good player who's cost controlled, they were more than happy to do it. But now that you have this large swath of young minor league players actually asking to get paid, it just it does the work of explaining why this was such bullshit to begin with. Right. Like if you can't afford to pay all of the people what they deserve to be paid, you're just admitting from the very beginning that this amount of people shouldn't have been part of your organization 
to begin with. Like you should have never had the ability to employ this many people if you can't if you're saying that you can't afford to pay them. And it it becomes a very fine line that they have to walk, that the MLB owners have to walk if they say that they can't afford to pay them. Because if you're admitting that you can't afford to pay all of these players, then like you have to prove that in some way, I guess. And transparency with the budget and the revenue is something that MLB teams are notoriously finicky over and notoriously not willing to give. And I think that leads nicely into the next thing that we were going to talk about before we get into our, our next segment, which is that Rob Manfred recently had comments saying that he's that the MLB owners and the league are not willing to negotiate on economic or not willing to give concessions on economic matters in the next bargaining agreements and the next labor negotiations, which if you read further into what Rob Manfred is saying, it's that the MLB owners are happy with how much they're making now and they're not willing to make any less to make the quality of life better for players at the major league level, but more importantly, players at the minor league level. I think it's so fascinating the way that Manfred and the MLB brass are approaching these issues because they very much come from a place of not necessarily like wanting to meet, meet a middle ground with the people on the other side of the table, but it's basically saying, here's what we want. Here are the the steps we're going to do to take it. And it's, it's kind of up to you how you want to move around that. Right. Like when it comes to the minor league teams, MLB has to like negotiate this with minor league baseball. And so instead of saying, what are the things that we can do to get players paid more or get players uh, in better travel conditions or whatever, they say, we're going to eliminate these teams. Now the onus is on you to like work with that, right? Like if you, if you want us to keep these teams around, fine, but they're not going to get paid anymore. Right. And similarly, when it comes to the labor negotiations, Manfred and the owners are basically saying, we're happy with the way that the system is set up. And if you want to negotiate around it, that's fine, but you might have to make concessions in other areas, right? Like the, Tony Clark and the players union fought really hard for like a lot of the quality of life issues in the last rounds of negotiation. So like, do you just give those up? Right? Like they wield so much power that it's really clear that the owners and the league are not necessarily interested in like finding a middle ground. Cause like, that's not what they give a shit about. Like they, they're making it more and more clear by the day that, they just don't have the same interests in mind anymore, which sucks. Cause like 20 or 30 years ago, you could have argued that maybe they did, but now it's just like, we, we, we don't care. Right. Like we don't care what you're fighting for. Right. Like the good faith is out the door. So, all right, bear with me on this here for a second. So like, there's this line in uh marriage story, which is a movie that I saw a couple weekends ago where they're negotiating over a divorce settlement and Adam Driver's character's lawyer is played by Ray Liotta. And he says, if they start from a place of crazy and we start from a place of reasonable, we're going to end up somewhere between reasonable and crazy, which isn't good for us. Right. And that's kind of like the negotiating tactic that is traditionally brought into quote unquote compromising or over negotiations. And also in labor negotiations, right? If you start from a place where you are further from what you actually want to get, when you compromise and you move backwards, you might get a lot of the things that you want to get. And that's the way the owners are thinking for sure. As evidenced by these Manfred comments saying you're not going to give any economic concessions is a ridiculous stance to take. You're going to give economic concessions. Like otherwise baseball is over. Like everybody will have to give some form of an economic concession. I think probably what he's actually specifically talking about is they're not going to give any more percentage points of the revenue to the players. The issue here is that we're not negotiating from a level playing field because like you're saying, the owners and Manfred, the MLB itself is wielding way more power than the players are now because the players are the ones who put on the jerseys and go out in front of the fans. So they have to start from a place of reasonable because they're going to get all the bad PR if this goes wrong because Nobody's a fan of Jim Crane. We already have established that we hate him. So 
fans are willing to tolerate terrible behavior from owners because they already dislike them. But if the players do something that fans perceive to be either in bad faith or too radical or too aggressive in the labor negotiations and it leads to baseball stopping, then they're going to get way more of a negative response than the owners themselves. The players have to start at a place of reasonable. The owners can start at a place of crazy because the even existence of billionaires in the United States is already crazy to begin with. Like they're already so far ahead in terms of power that there's nothing that fans can do to take that power back from those billionaires. Unless like the public gets educated about these things, unless you listen to what someone like Bernie Sanders is saying on Twitter in support of minor league baseball, unless players are willing to smartly articulate some of these things like a guy like Sean Doolittle has been doing for basically his entire time in the league. Like it's more than just doing well at the negotiating tables. It's changing the public conversation around some of these things that needs to get done in order for a fair and good faith negotiation to happen. Yeah. The owners are just able to shift the Overton window further and further to the right on these things. Like, Anyone who says that like sports and politics are separate, it's like you can draw very clear parallels to what's happening between Major League Baseball and what happens at like the national level, right? Like if you just run someone out there who spews rhetoric that's like further and further to the right, then like the other side is just going to have to give in and be like, okay, well, how do we compromise with these people, right? Like in in 20 years ago, if the right is like, we can be kind of racist, then the left can be like, well, let's meet in the middle and be like 50% racist. But like when the right just goes full on like white hoods, then the, then the left is just like, um, what if the, what if the hoods are red instead, you know, like, (laughs) and that's, it's a awful parallel to draw, but it's like the owners can just like drag this thing further and further to the right, knowing like you were saying, like the players don't have the power in this that, that they should, and they'll just have to keep conceding further and further, which is why, especially like with these comments that Man- Manfred made privately, right? This wasn't even publicly announced. So like we're headed for a labor stoppage. Like it's going to, I know that we keep saying that, but like this is another one that goes in Tony Clark's binder that he has of just like tweets and articles about Rob Manfred. We're imagining Tony Clark is so analog. Like he's like a middle schooler who has like a what are those things called? The 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 binders that have like that zip. Oh god. What are they called? I don't know. Zip zip <laughs> zippy binders. Oh, I, zippy binders. I, I imagine Tony Clark more as like a as like a 50s noir detective, you know, who's mm. like in his room, like smoking a cigar. He's like, hmm, Manfred said what? Uh, another one for the books, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the dirty truth of all of this is that fans and the public have a hard time seeing playing baseball as labor. Like a lot of people have a difficult time internalizing the idea that what they do in their day to day and their nine to five as fans or they're eight to eight, whatever you might be working. You're grinding, I get it. A lot of people have a hard time internalizing that that's one-to-one with what baseball players are doing in terms of labor. But just because the baseball labor ecosystem is so unique and so hard to compare to the rest of, or to a lot of other labor ecosystems doesn't mean that it's not one and doesn't mean that it is not influenced by like the unique forces of capitalism that we try to talk about on this podcast a lot. I don't think that like we have enough time, like the runway is too short to really have the best version of that conversation by the time the labor negotiations roll around. So I'm just hoping that Tony Clark's zippy binder is full of enough, enough stuff to get the job done. When it, when it actually does roll around. Because this is actually like a really alarming thing to hear Rob Manfred say. Like saying that you're going to give no economic concessions in private might actually mean that you're like trying to give no economic concessions. I don't know. Maybe he knew it would get leaked. I don't know. What is... I, have, I know nothing about the internal thoughts of Rob Manfred. I was thinking about that. I was listening to a podcast about his quotes at the GM meetings. And they had his quote from the press scrum 
about how MLB is not close to having an answer on the Astro sign stealing situation. And, you know, he was saying that he doesn't anticipate that this is going to, this web is going to spread to all of the other 29 teams in baseball. But if it does, they'll handle that accordingly, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just listening to Rob Manfred talk and I'm like, I know nothing about this guy. I know nothing about the way he thinks. I don't really know anything about his past. I don't know his politics. I could guess them. I don't know. I just know nothing. He's not a, he's just a robotic face for the deep, deep, deep pockets and the deep power of the 30 owners in baseball. And like, he's been commissioner of baseball for the the entirety of my adult life and the better part of my time on this earth. And the fact that I just know nothing about him, like at least I knew that Bud Selig was a piece of shit from his Milwaukee days. I just, somebody write a New Yorker profile of Rob Manfred. What podcast is he listening to? (laughs) What movies is he going to see on opening weekend? Screw the rest of the podcast. Let's just talk about what Rob Manfred listens to. Because it's certainly not tipping pitches. That's for sure. I think Manfred's a Rogan guy. Oh, God. Um, Okay. Uh, Let's really quickly talk about the the Jim Crane comments. Um, So Jim Crane at the GM survey, he was seen walking out and some uh, reporters approached him. And as they started to kind of as the deluge of questions about sign stealing and et cetera, et cetera, started to hit. He said, if you want to talk about baseball, I'll talk about baseball. And basically he just like turned his nose up at the, the idea that reporters would want to ask questions about this. And not, and that's not surprising really, but like, I just don't get like, I know we already did our whole sign stealing rant. I know we did our rant about like how toxic and from the top down that the Astros organization is, but like I'm a little bit confused at how you can have this type of scandal hit and not think that the media is going to ask you about it or have the audacity to be like, I can just tell people I'm not going to answer this question because first of all, this is about baseball. We're not asking Jim Crane about his personal life. We're not even asking him about off the field issues with players in his organization. We're asking about a thing that his team did on the field in the game of play to gain a competitive advantage. This feels like the most appropriate and low hanging fruit of a question that a reporter could even ask. So to suggest that you don't need to answer questions for it, just suggest that you think that you're literally invincible as an, as a major league baseball owner. It's the funniest shit in the world to me that he was escorted away by police officers, you know, that he literally just had to call in cops to protect him from the media from Jeff passing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like big Jeff passing and going to jump him out there. For some quotes, I, uh, I, yeah, you're, you're one of the 30 most powerful people like in baseball and maybe the most powerful person in that room. But like, you need a guy in blue to come and be like, all right, guys, enough with the, enough with the questions, you know, enough like, with what the completely it, appropriate questions that you're asking. Put the, sir, put the pen down. I'm going to, I'm going to need you to put the pen and the notepad down back away from the owner. Like what? The for all for all the these owners I feel like love to like pump themselves up, you know, because they know that they wield a lot of power. But like in the end, they're 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 weak, man. Like they're they're afraid. And and this shows it, right? Because they know that like they're in that hot seat. And if they open themselves up to public scrutiny, like they're gonna get burned by it. Yes. And this is a very clear example of that, right? Because like your team is under like the biggest spotlight a team has been under in years and you basically refuse to talk to the press about it, which is stunning to me. Uh, but it just shows that like, you know that you're, you're not ready for it. <laughs> like you, you cannot take the heat. Well, it also just shows that like there is no, there is no acceptable a form of accountability to in these people's minds. Like I even think about something like Jim Spanfeller and Geo Media and Deadspin. Like before the shuttering and the ruining of Deadspin, like Jim Spanfeller was just another kind of nameless 
media executive who was ruining people's lives in private. And then when it happened in public, he very much responded negatively to it. And before all of the stuff about Roberto Osuna and Brandon Taubman and now the sign stealing stuff, Jim Crane was just another baseball owner who got to do stuff however he saw fit. Like he got to build this organization, I imagine probably in his image and look how they turned out. And now that people are publicly calling it out, he has this same kind of adverse reaction. It's just like, just because no one was asking you about these things before doesn't mean that you weren't doing them. Doesn't mean that you suddenly get to feel aggrieved when all of the questions hit you at once. Just because you haven't had a lifetime of being held accountable for your actions doesn't mean that as you're 60 now in all of your quote unquote success, you get to just dodge. Like it doesn't work like that when you want to be a professional baseball owner and a public figure. Your actions are actually affecting the lives of a shitload of people. I mean, and the thing is, like, I think Crane knows that he's protected by MLB too, right? Like there were comments of his that resurfaced in the last few weeks made before he took over as owner of the Astros where he, you know, talked about how once you, once you hire blacks, like you can never fire them. Right. And, and MLB signs off on this, right? Like by, by making him owner, it's an implicit, like saying like, okay, we can like overlook your racist transgressions to, to like, let you be. And so it's kind of just like, what were we expecting? You know? And and this feels like the, the closest to any sort of public scrutiny that this guy gets, you know? And and I'm certain that Manfred and the league will do uh, their job of investigating the team, but I also get the sense that they kind of want to protect their own. Because that's, yeah, really, that's just, really that's what it's all the about. the exact phrase that I was going to say. <laughs> you, right, He's, exactly. Jim Crane is sitting in the same rooms as Rob Manfred. He's not sitting in the same rooms as Tony Clark and Sean Doolittle. He's just not. And that's the naked truth of it. Like, I'm sure Manfred will come down on the Astros, whatever, quote unquote, make an example out of them. But not because he disagrees with Jim Crane. I'm sure Manfred's not going to come out and wh- wag his finger at Jim Crane by name. He'll just pin it on Jeff Lunau or whoever else is whoever else they end up pinning it on in the Astros organization. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break, come back, and we're going to each ask each other five questions that we are dying to know the answer about the other person. All right, Alex, yesterday I was trying to think of segments that were a little less news related, a little more evergreen, and frankly, a little less emotionally taxing to talk about. And so I thought maybe we would just, instead of interviewing a guest, um, just interview each other for a little bit. So I thought of five questions that I don't know the answer to about you, and I think that you maybe did the same. I'm hoping that you did the same, because otherwise the segment would be weird if it was just me asking you five questions and than us ending the podcast. Oh no, I thought I thought we were gonna have Sean Doolittle booked. So all of my questions are about what it was like having the Nationals win the World Series. But I'll I'll make it work. It's fine. All right, hold on. Let me get in character as Sean Doolittle. <laughs> it's not that much of an emotional leap. <laughs> it's not at all. <laughs> okay, I'll start us off. Um, um, my first question for you is an easy one. I want to know what is your first memory at a baseball stadium? What is that one that's like seared into your brain? Where you're like a little kid, but you don't know why you remember it, but you do. Whoosh. Okay. Let's uh let's dig deep in the files here. Dig deep in the brain's zippy binder. Yeah, the, the, the zippy binder. <laughs> <laughs> I will admit that years of abuse to my brain through lack of sleep and copious amounts of caffeine have probably done a lot of damage. And so things are very hazy before I'm like, you know, 15. <laughs> 15? You don't remember <laughs> stuff before you're 15? But uh, I'm I concerned do- <laughs> for you. <laughs> but I have glimpses of memories at the 
Oakland Coliseum. And a lot of them are just like single plays that I remember. Like I very distinctly remember being in the outfield during a day game and Eric Burns made a diving catch. Nice. Crash test dummy as they call them. Let's remember some guys. Let's remember some guys. And I turned to my dad and gave him a high five. And like, I don't, I don't remember what my ninth birthday was like, but I can vividly tell you everything about that scene. You know? was like, I don't remember your last name, <laughs> but Eric Burns. <laughs> but like, generally, I think that like, that's such an interesting part of sports fandom at large yes. is like these, these moments are so crystallized in you. I mean, and, and, and it's not a part of your question, but like, I, I vividly remember like throwing in the VHS tape of the A's, 2002 baseball season, you know, and just like watching that, mm-hmm. watching, watching them clinch the division and, or, or winning 20 games in a row and stuff like that is, it's, it's like bizarre the way your mind hangs on to that. I'm like, you should probably have better priorities. I'm not mad, but like there are other more important things that you should be keeping safe up there. It's weird that you have Moneyball on VHS, but that's fine. <laughs> All right. What's your first question for me? All right, my first question for you, I want to know who is on your personal Mount Rushmore of baseball players. Not oh. necessarily like like the four of all time, you know, because you could easily put Jackie Robinson and Babe Ruth and who knows else. But like from your own personal fandom, whether yeah. you were alive or not, like the the players that meant the most. Ooh. Yeah, sorry, I didn't give you an easy one to start off with. Um, do they all have to be real? Can I use like a, a fictional character? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, David Wright, okay. and who else? It's David Wright. <laughs> <laughs> uh, David Wright's definitely on there, so I'll just start there because I'm not going to lie to myself or the listener. Um I think my reasoning for that is obvious. Like we were doing this podcast when David Wright retired. So I spilled all my heart and soul at the time. Um, He was like the first franchise cornerstone. I like remember his debut. So that's the reasoning there. I'm going to go another Mets player for number two. I'm going to go with Mookie Wilson, not exclusively because he was the one that hit the single that sent it to game seven. Um, But probably because he was the one member of the 1986 team that like you could probably root for in good conscience. (laughs) Um, If you've read anything about that team, obviously I wasn't alive during that, (laughs) during that season. Um, But I've spent a lot of time reading about that team. I've read the bad guys one by Jeff Perlman, which is an incredible book. And by all accounts, he's just like the nicest and best. And um, he went on to be like a minor league coach in the Mets organization. So yeah, I love Mookie. Uh, so I asked about fictional characters. Can it be a fictional character who doesn't actually play? Like, can they just be from a baseball movie? Yeah, I. You can interpret this as loosely as you want. The four, the four people from your baseball fandom, however near or far. Okay, number three for me is. Um, this is just like spitballing off the top of my head because you didn't give me time to prepare for this one, even though I would have needed time, a lot of time to prepare for this one. But uh, the James Earl Jones character from Field of Dreams, Terrence Mann. Uh, Field of Dreams, my favorite baseball movie. The one constant through all the year, Ray. It's, it's been baseball. baseball. Uh, America has rolled. No, I'm going to do the whole thing. Yes, it's please do. by like an army. Just keep going while I explain why. <laughs> I'll like fade you down into the background, do a yes, little editing, ex- producing. Exactly, yeah. Um. Like I could have chosen a Sandlot character. I could have chosen like Ray Kinsella, the lead of Field of Dreams. But I feel like more so it's like his character really speaks to me and the movie speaks to me in general because at the beginning of the movie, he's lost his love for the game. And like, I think you know this because we were friends at this time that I was starting to like get back into my baseball fandom. But 
there was like a time period in like the 2010s, like the early 2010s where like, I just was not, I was not in on major league baseball. Like I was frustrated obviously by the Mets and the rebuild and everything, but also in general, I was just kind of deeply frustrated with like everybody's attitude towards baseball, like the steroid era and like the leftovers of that. And like the way that people just kind of assume things about good players for like the next 20 years really frustrated me. And I stopped playing baseball. I kind of stopped watching a lot of major league baseball, except for the playoffs. And so like the fact that you can step away from it and come back. And there's a character that articulates that so well in a movie. I think that's why I might choose him as my third character. Um, all right. For the fourth slot, I want to choose. There's so many people I would like to choose. And there are a lot of current players that I could put on there. Like, I think that I might would like might like to put Jacob deGrom on there, but then there would be three <laughs> Mets players. And I feel like it's not totally representative. And I'm going to cheat a little bit because this fourth guy is also he played for the Mets for a couple of years, but Yo, he's not a Met. It's okay. Mount Rushmore is like the furthest thing from quote unquote representative, representative. <laughs> that you can get. Um, no, the fourth guy that I'm going to put on there is Pedro. Ooh. Because not only like do I admire his love of the game and like childlike way that he approaches it, even in his analysis of it in his post playing career, but just like he's the first dominant pitcher I ever remember watching and like I was a pitcher when I played and so watching him like be this kind of smaller guy who just like overpowered people anyway and had like all these different pitches that he could beat you with like sort of the first coherent era of my baseball fandom was spent with Pedro Martinez being like the ace of baseball and so for that reason I will choose Pedro also like He's so bombastic and he's like so unafraid of who he wants to be, but also like really humble. Like when he said, you know, when he says to opposing fan bases, like you're my daddy today, like that shit is great. Like that's what we need. That's what you and I are craving when we're like talking about, we wish more players were interactive and expressive. Yeah. And Pedro's like Pedro in 2019 would, is it too far to say that he would make like baseball great? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, there's like, I think like players having a level of self-awareness, you know, like he did, makes the game more enjoyable to watch, you know, like playing the game in 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 almost like a, like a tongue in cheek way, you know, yes. of being like, what are you going to do? Huh? But like having the most fun with it. And it's just, yeah, it, it crystallizes, I think, what makes the game so enjoyable for us as fans. How's that? Is that a good four? I fuck with it. Yeah. I threw you're gonna, Terrence Mann on there. You're gonna, you threw Terrence Mann on there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I like it. You're gonna, we're gonna stop recording and you're gonna think of like two more people and you're gonna be like, fuck, why isn't he on there? But it's fine. We'll do, we'll do revisionist history next week. You're right. Okay. Number two, Alex Trebek retires. What Major League Baseball player, past or present, do you, Alex Baisley, choose to replace him as the host of the hit? Quiz show Jeopardy. I'm going through right now and I'm watching a lot of past Jeopardy and I'm, I'm in the middle of watching some of the, one of the college championship rounds. Oh, I love those ones. Cause There's, I actually know some of the answers. Yeah. You know, some of the answers answers and the kids, they like, they don't know an answer and you're like, Jesus fucking Christ. I could have been on Jeopardy. Oh my God. I, you mean I could have played for a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. I love going back and watching old Jeopardy. Yeah, it's iconic. I feel like I might go with Yogi Berra. Whoa. Because I think his level of wit and just kind of his ability to make off-the-cuff remarks that leave you scratching your head. I mean, obvi- I mean, he's well known for that. But in a in a in an environment like Jeopardy that's so fast paced. I mean, the the number of things that like Alex just says and then moves on from and you're like, wait, hang on. Hang on a second. Did you just dunk on this 20 year old? For Dude, he, like, He stays dunking on people. He, he does not hold back. 
And not that I want to see Yogi Berra like eviscerate college students, although if you if you put him on a different game show, I I would watch that. But I a part of me also thinks that like he would just try to answer the questions before the contestants did, you know? Like I'd <laughs> I'd like to think that he just knows most of the answers. <laughs> Maybe I'm projecting too much onto Yogi Berra, who's the myth of him has far eclipsed like I think who he actually was. But, you know, I just, I'd like to think of him as like baseball's Yoda, you know, like, yeah, like he's just going to, he's just going to drop some wisdom on you that you weren't even ready for. That's going to make you reevaluate like what you're doing with your life. And frankly, Alex Trebek is, is real life's Yoda. We're getting deep with the metaphors here. Right. So, so I think that's who I'd go with. I like it. Okay. What's up next? All right. Up next. I want you to give me your your hottest, most contrarian, most old man yells at cloud take yes. about, about baseball today. Hell yeah. This is an amazing prompt. <laughs> um, it's not really hot, hot enough and not really contrarian enough to say that I don't think the DH is good. God, I, we've had that I, argument. No, I'm not going to choose that. <laughs> cool it. Okay, we've had that argument on this podcast like three too many times for me to use that. And I think also at this point you're probably coming around to the fact that you're wrong. So like it wouldn't even be it wouldn't even be fun. So I'm not coming around to that fact. <laughs> um I think my hottest most old man yells at cloud take is that I think the use of relief pitching in baseball has become insane. Like, I think it's so out of control with how many, how quickly starters get pulled and how many relievers are being relied on to be good all on the same day. And I understand that in a larger sample size, like of an entire season, obviously the ERAs and the peripherals of relievers are better than starters for the third time through the order. But like, specifically on one day to use that many pitchers and think they're all going to be good, I think is fucking crazy. Like the fact that you can just have a random June game and like eight relievers can be used by the Dodgers. And you think that's going to work on a consistent basis. I know we've had this argument about like starting pitcher usage versus relief pitcher usage. And when one is going to take over when relief pitchers are going to take over for starters or whether it's just going to become like a 50, 50 kind of thing. But like, I think we have gone way too far and I think that we should just trust starters some more, especially like when those starters are Max Scherzer, like the people on Twitter clamoring for him to get yanked from that World Series game. I wanted to reply to every single one of them like a boomer, but I resisted the urge. That is my hottest take. That is me yelling at cloud. All right, John Smoltz. You, I asked you for a hot a hot take, and you started talking about like peripherals like and sim- sample size, yeah. and I'm like, no, 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 I need you to like get into New York Post mode and just and not mention any like data, like just straight from the gut. You'd be like, relievers, they suck, they suck. <laughs> what are they there for? What are they there for? To just relieve us of of our joy? That's all they're there for. Yes, that's my mushnik. <laughs> um. Honestly, though, like I weirdly in my core, I'm like, what if they just slept bad? You know, like there's my New York Post, like no data backing it up. Like, what if they're in a bad mood? You know, like if I'm a reliever, I'm not pitching well. If I'm in a bad mood, this is my take. (laughs) I love it. I want to spend an hour on this, but we obviously can't. So what do you have next for me? We should have just an entire episode where we just get off takes. Uh, people would tune out after like 10 minutes a hundred percent okay number three if you get to the good place and they tell the tell you that you can have the answer to any baseball related question it has to be a thing that actually happened like like not like predict the future about baseball or not like a hypothetical like you need to know you can know a secret that has never been publicly revealed what is the first thing that you ask about what conspiracy theory do you want to know? What backroom dealing? What question do you ask? You famously did a very good conspiracy theories segment on this podcast a couple months ago. 
So maybe something from there. I don't know. Uh, there are a lot of baseball myths that I would probably want to know the answer to or, or figure out whether or not they're, they're true. And there are a lot of, I think, easier ones, right? Like, did, did Babe Ruth really call his shot? Like, yes. that would be, yes, he, yeah, he called his shot. Did, did Wade Boggs really drink 64 beers on a, on a cross-country flight? <laughs> the answer is, the answer is also yes. So, <laughs> I, I think. Did Cal Ripken Jr.'s wife cheat on him? <laughs> The night of a game. I think the question that would probably pique my interest the most, just as far as like a, a baseball fan goes, is something along the lines of who was the best hitter of all time that we never really got to see. Mm-hmm. And I'm specifically thinking about prior to baseball's integration, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of superstars who were likely as good, if not better, than um, the game's legends that we know, but they were just lost to history because they, they weren't on center stage and the records were not very well kept. But there's, you know, there's a lot of talk about how a player like Josh Gibson was maybe the best power hitter of all time, right? And could he take the place of someone like Babe Ruth as like the baseball player that everyone knows, right? I think that something like that, that flips the the history of the sport on its head would be really fascinating to think about and and learn like a, a definitive answer to, you know? I like that answer. I think that's good. I think similarly, like, maybe, like, what is the fastest pitch ever thrown, like, in human existence might be a fun question to know the answer to, because, like, not every pitch has been clocked. It's reasonable to think that not every hard-throwing pitcher made it to the major league level, you know? Like, things like that would be fun to know for sure. Yeah, I want to I wanna know about the things that were lost to the annals of history just because you didn't have a zippy binder around to... <laughs> to put the stats in, you know, like you just, you just had to remember that, but you know, because of lack of sleep and caffeine, you forgot that Josh Gibson was the best power hitter of all time. Sure. Um, okay. Your third question for me, what's up? You, uh, through a military coup, you have just become Rob Manfred has been overthrown. You are now the commissioner of baseball. What? Storming fifth Ave, baby. (laughs) What? Is your uh, is your plan for your first hundred days? What are the things your top like three or four things that you want to tackle most? And this can you know this can be like specifically on field stuff like getting rid of the DH or more cosmetic stuff like getting rid of the wave. Any anything is at your fingertips. Two lovely suggestions right yeah. off the bat. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, giving me ammo to work with. So does it have to be stuff that I can accomplish within the first hundred days? Not necessarily things you have to put the period on, but like what are, what's at the top of your priority list? You know, what do you at the very least want to get the ball rolling on? Okay. I'll give two answers. Number one, actually I'll give three answers. Number one, minor league pay. I think drafting some sort of document or labor agreement that will afford minor leaguers a larger portion of the profits that major league baseball makes um i think it's a pretty obvious one and we spent a long time talking about that at the beginning of this podcast so i won't go too in depth on that but like within my first hundred days i think i could think of something that would be more equitable for minor leaguers i I, i'm no labor lawyer but i think it's uh not rocket science to figure out that getting paid less than living wage in 2019 is bad. <laughs> it's literally, you just have a pile of money, and on the left, there are billionaires, and on the right, there are a, thousands of people getting paid below minimum wage. And the question is just, who do you give the money to? <laughs> okay, number two, goodbye to instant replay. I think that's something that I could actually accomplish within the first 100 days. Just no more. Just none. There's no modified instant replay. There's no nothing. It's just gone. Wow. 
bold, but I, I like it and I respect it. And a more reasonable version of that would be a, a 30 second long clock on each instant replay. And um, no, each game- no, 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 no concessions, Bobby. Don't give in. We don't want reasonable one. I want you to get rid of instant replay day one. I'm, man, I'm a man with a plan over here. 30 seconds. <laughs> each game that's being played has an instant replay technician assigned to it. And they determine within that we just expand the umpires you know if robot umps are going to come and take umpires jobs let's move all those umpires into jobs where they're assigned to each individual game and we don't have to wait so fucking long for them to watch and determine wow a job creator we stand number three i put caps on ticket prices and concession prices at baseball games and specifically i make it more affordable for like family packages because you and I are obviously of the belief that like seeing baseball in person going develops like a very specific bond. Like my first question to you was what's your most or what is your first memory at a baseball game? And you described to me like one play from a game when you were however years old that got you so excited that you turned around, gave your dad a high five. And like you still remember that even through all of the lack of sleep that we've experienced together and all of the caffeine that we've experienced together. So we need to create a more affordable way for that to exist. So a cap on what you can charge a person for a normal amount of food to sustain themselves through a three-hour baseball game. Except for beer. Keep beer the most expensive thing there. We don't need a bunch of drunk dads walking around the stadium. Um, okay. We're running a little short on time, so uh, let's just do four questions. So this is my fourth question, fourth and final question for you. Uh, I alluded to it earlier in my answer about my Mount Rushmore, but has there ever been a time that you, Alex Baisley, considered giving up on baseball or not watching baseball? And why did you consider that if there was a time and what reeled you back? Hell yes. I love this question. I think about this like every few weeks. I'm not even kidding. I think because baseball offers you so many opportunities to just jump ship, you know, especially in this day and age. And I've Um, seen people that I like and respect and people that I follow on Twitter and people in my real life who have given me very valid reasons for why they don't like baseball anymore or they can't follow baseball anymore. Brittany De La Creta came on this podcast and talked about how she doesn't follow baseball as much as she used to. So like, yeah, that's the genesis of this question. I I think that similar to you, as I was probably, probably like middle school to high school, I think, I, I think it's not necessarily that I stopped becoming a baseball fan, but as you start like worrying about like high school drama or just like, the 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 like Theater, tension uh, tension of tests <laughs> being ratcheted up. Uh, I, I think it almost feels like things get so much more complicated there. And and at the time, also the the A's were not particularly competitive. There was a there was a window there where they were uh, they were just you know bouncing in and out of the cellar. And I think it's easy to not necessarily be engaged as a fan when your team is bad. I think that's okay. And it's good. Bandwagoning is good. Um, Shout out to Kaiser. Hell yeah. Um, I, you know, I think it's like a lot of us have moments where like other things in our life pop up and all of a sudden like sports starts to take a backseat. And that, I think that's kind of what started happening to me as I became an, an angsty teenager just and, bumping bright eyes and ditching baseball. Yes. And there exactly. <laughs> there are two things that brought me back to baseball. And that is the the 2012 Oakland A's season mm-hmm. where they where they won the division on the very last day against the Texas Rangers. I was there. I'll never forget that game. I skipped school to go to it. And fuck yeah, the other Santa th- Truant. <laughs> uh, and the other thing that brought me back is Mike Trout. I'm yeah, I am, I, and I say that with the the least amount of irony possible. In in 2012, I got into fantasy baseball. 
I I draft I, or I picked up Mike Trout when he was called up, and then all of a sudden I had a reason to like watch and pay attention to the biggest superstar I will ever get to personally witness, and it was glorious. And and seriously, like those are the things that like. I think have the ability to recapture your imagination as a baseball fan, right? It's like these players who can do something you've never seen happen before. Just and powering the, through this ambulance. I love this. This <laughs> rant is so important that he won't stop. <laughs> See, I couldn't even hear it. I was thinking about the 2012 A's and I was just like, fuck, Just keep man. going. This is raw. I love it. <laughs> it's getting closer. <laughs> oh, right outside my window. There it is. The 2012 Oakland A's, oh my God, I'll go for an hour on this. You said we're short on time, but but not anymore. Time is time is meaningless when we're talking about the magic that is baseball. And that's what and that's what that season uh so that season did for me. So that was an amazing so sh- answer. Shouts out to them and shouts out to Mike Trout. I'm so glad I asked that question. Okay, fourth and final question you ask me. Well, you kind of stole my thunder. I, not that I was going to ask the exact same question, but I was going to ask what the what the moment you think was that really crystallized your baseball fandom as it exists today. Like we talked about, it goes through rhythms and cycles, but like over the last few years, however long it's been, what do you think was that kind of catalyst that that, that brought you back into its arms? Mm-hmm. So as my fandom exists today makes the answer a little different. I think like as a kid, it, it was going to baseball games and like developing my own identity in terms of things that made me happy. And one of them was playing baseball. So like therefore watching baseball, trying to pick things up from major leaguers was like the genesis of it, but also like creating friendships, like creating relationships, things that could bridge the gap generation generationally between me and like, you know, my mom's parents who like my grandfather was a huge Mets fan. So like that, that kind of thing was where it, I think where the foundation was laid. I think as it stands now, like the moment, if I can pinpoint it was, uh, Matt Harvey's home debut. Hell yeah. <laughs> I think it was like 11 K's or something like that. I really, yeah, I don't five, remember the exact five and a third, three hits, three walks. There he goes, the exact box score. You're a degenerate. You're just truly a degenerate. But <laughs> it had been a while since I felt like that rush of like euphoria and adrenaline from watching one player. And I think specifically like a pitcher can provide that for you. And that's why I put someone like Pedro on my Mount Rushmore. But then the follow-up to that is that that start from the 2015 World Series, the one where that he Terry Collins kept him in in the ninth inning, and they ended up losing, and he ended up blowing it. For the first eight innings of that game, I have literally never felt closer to Nirvana. Like that was the happiest I have ever been watching any sporting event in my life. I would go back and watch the highlights, and I would just shut the video off before he blows it. I have watched the highlights of that game so many times. The fist pump that he does walking off after he gets a strikeout to end one of the innings. Like, I think those two moments are probably the thing that have like laid the foundation for my fan base as it stands now. And obviously they're Mets related. Like it just makes sense yeah. that it's that way. Um, so yeah, it's Matt Harvey, which makes it so hard that Matt Harvey has become what Matt Harvey has become. But for that reason, I will never look back ill on his time with the Mets. Like a lot of fans do. Yeah, I I mean, I think that those are, I mean, I wouldn't have expected anything else from you. And I love that answer. And I I love how I think that our answers speak to that, the same thing of being so, so captivated by like a moment, right? Of being like, this is, this is the only thing in the world that matters, right? Like, I don't care about drama with, girls or boys at school. I don't care about my homework tomorrow. Like all I care about is Matt Hardy about to strike out this batter. All all I care about is the fact that Josh Hamilton just dropped the fly ball and the A's are going <laughs> to win the fucking division. You know? Hell like yeah. like the ability to like put those blinders on you and and make it feel like that's the only thing in the world that matters. Like that's what's up. That's the good shit. 
All right, let's not belabor this outro because we ran a little long predictably, but I think that segment was fun and I think I uh, I learned a lot about you, my co-host, which is which makes for better podcasting. Indeed it does. As always, thank you for listening. We will be back maybe in a little bit more than a week, some holiday travel on the agenda, but we will see. We're coming up on episode 100. Hopefully we can do something special for that if you have any ideas. Um, or if you've been a listener since episode one or episode zero, the trailer, <laughs> the trailer, that would be iconic. If you were a listener since the trailer, real, um, only real tipping pitches had snow. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. Stroud drives this one out toward deep left center field. Rasmus giving chase, still going back at the wall. Goal! Big fly for Mike Trout. His first of the year. The Angels are back on top two to one. Here's the one two. And he gets him swinging. First batter in the big leagues. And Harvey strikes out par with a slider for the first out. Trout launches one down the left field line. This one's hit well, and this one's got a chance. Goal! Big fly for Mike Trout. Two-run shot. The Angels get on the board as they trail it 7-2. Here's the one-two. Check swing. He went around strike three. Goldschmidt has struck out for the third time. 11 strikeouts for Matt Harvey. Well, uh,